show heard each and every Wednesday 6 to 7 p.m. here on the Progressive Radio Network. Glad you're with us and uh, a busy week and next week's going to be even busier on account of Pope Francis is coming to New York and of course there is the big debate tonight. I am not going to watch it. It's not something that particularly interests me. Uh, I'm, I'm sure maybe maybe I'd be interested as to whether or not Chris Christie can get beyond 1% in the polls because uh, most people in Jersey thought he would have dropped out by now like Rick Perry already did. But that's for them to sort out. Let them do what they are going to do. If you didn't know the name James Blake from his tennis exploits, he was once, I believe, the number four player in the world. He retired two years ago. He's 35 years old. And he was involved in an incident with the NYPD, whereby he was apparently mistaken for someone the NYPD was looking for in a credit card fraud bust, actually selling cell phones, and uh, was wrestled to the ground by an NYPD officer. There's a lot that is going back and forth about this, and we're going to kind of dig deep into it. Uh, The initial report on this is interesting in that it uh, there's a, a bunch of things that according to this account took place but we haven't heard much about those incidents in the account since the event and since the NYPD has had egg all over its face uh, uh, James Blake did an interview with the Daily News. He was leaving the Grand Hyatt Hotel. He was making appearances for corporate sponsors at the U.S. Open, which, of course, concluded earlier this week. So he was accosted around noon by a plainclothes officer, and he was then surrounded by other officers and handcuffed. He said he told the officers who he was, but was detained for about 15 minutes while they confirmed his identity. He had cuts and bruises as a result of the encounter, and of course, there is video of same. Says James Blake, quote, to me, it's as simple as unnecessary police force, no matter what my race is. In my mind, there's probably a race factor involved, but no matter what, there's no reason for anybody to do that to anybody. He goes on, I was just standing there, I wasn't running. Referring to the use of force, he said, It's blatantly unnecessary. You would think at some point they would get the memo that this isn't okay. But it seems there's no stopping it. Police Commissioner Bill Bratton later told New York One, quote, we will aggressively address it. I will not tolerate any type of excessive force on the part of my police. But as always, and we have that saying, the first story is never the last story, so we'll wait and see what we get for facts and circumstances, and hopefully video. Well, yes, they did have video, and in point of fact, the facts of this situation are even more damaging, in my judgment, to the NYPD than the accosting of James Blake. Apparently, plainclothes cops were investigating a ring believed to be using fraudulent credit cards to buy cell phones. As part of the investigation, police had a private service deliver phones to a suspect at the hotel. Once the delivery took place, the suspect was arrested, according to this official. Now, we haven't heard who that suspect was or is, and it's going to be important as we get a little bit further down into this story. The delivery person then pointed out to the police two other people in the lobby to whom he said he had delivered phones the previous day. They detained those two people. One of them 
was James Blake. He was released after a retired police officer recognized him. Now, there are differing accounts as to how long he was detained. Police said he was in handcuffs for less than a minute. Uh, James Blake claims that the police initially did not identify himself. Now, the video, they were asked whether or not he was thrown to the ground. The video shows he was, quite simply, thrown to the ground. But there's a very interesting twist to this particular story. And we're also going to get into a, a column that was written by uh, a really good man, Jim Dwyer, about somebody else that was forced to the ground, an 11-year-old kid forced to the ground in handcuffs, handcuff, and it's not getting anywhere near the attention that James Blake is, obviously. But there's a story in the New York Post today how Instagram tricked NYPD into James Blake arrest. Now this... This is fascinating. Many of you may have heard that the picture that they had of the so-called suspect that they were looking to arrest, who does look a bit like James Blake, but it turns out that guy is a sunglass maker by the name of Sean Sapper. He's from Australia. He apparently had nothing to do with whatever credit card scam the NYPD was going after. He got caught, it, caught up in the debacle, according to the New York Post, God help me, when an Instagram photo of the Sydney resident was apparently used by a ring of thieves to mask their online account with the courier app Go Butler. So apparently, Go Butler was the source that the NYPD used to try and close the trap on these fraudsters. But Go Butler had a bad picture. Apparently, uh, a picture of Sean Sather from his brother's Instagram account. So, <laughs> at this point, you got to ask yourself, what, what, how keystone can this whole thing get? According to the Post, the cops were given Sather's photo while setting up a sting outside the Grand Hyatt Hotel. At noon on Wednesday, last Wednesday, Go Butler Courier then pointed out Blake to cops at the scene and busted him in that incident, the takedown, which they now acknowledge was, in fact, a takedown. Says Sean Safa, quote, I have watched the video and I think it's outrageous. James Blake was unjustly assaulted and intimidated during the botched arrest by a cop by the name of Frascatori. He's on desk duty at this point. We don't know whether he's going to face any kind of departmental charges or criminal charges, although I doubt they're going to say he'd be, he'll be subject to criminal charges. Now, what ought to concern people about all of this is that the NYPD apparently set up a sting based on bogus information. These fraudsters tricked the NYPD. Tricked them. And we probably wouldn't know anything at all about that had not an overzealous cop decided to take down a former tennis star. But it gets back to a central question. Where are the fraudsters now? <laughs> Who are these ring of thieves that were using stolen credit cards to buy cell phones? Cops don't have them, as far as I know, because I would imagine if they did, they'd be shouting it from the rooftops. Bottom line, the NYPD has not one egg, but two eggs all over its collective face. One, they tackled the guy unnecessarily, who happened to be a former tennis star, and who, by the way, is coming back to run in the New York City Marathon not too long from now. And beyond that, the original information they had was bad information. Now, it strikes me that the NYPD is trying to get tech savvy. Because at some point, you might think somebody in the department would say, well, let's check this guy out before we go out and set up a sting. And then 
bust the wrong guy. If Sean Sapper had been in New York at the time, they'd have busted him, and he'd have been the wrong guy. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. Now, beyond that, the PBA, the Patrolman's Benevolent Association, Patty Lynch, president, went on one of his rather typical rants, which was headlined in the New York Times, NYPD union head asks public not to judge Officer and James Blake incident. Says Pat Lynch, and this was in response to a New York Times editorial, I might add, quote, no one should ever jump to an uninformed conclusion based on a few seconds of video. Uh, he's right about nobody jumping to an un- uninformed conclusion, which apparently is what the NYPD did. They jumped to an uninformed conclusion. But Patty Lynch, of course, goes on, let all the facts lead where they will, but police officers have earned the benefit of the doubt because of the dangers we routinely face. End quote from Patty Lynch. He goes on in this particular statement to disparage the media editorial writers who called for this guy Frascatore to be fired. I think James Blake called for him to be fired, too. But, you know, the central issue is that whether you want to call it racial or not, the NYPD has a problem in the way it deals with citizens of color. James Blake, by the way, is is, uh, part black, part white, which is why maybe he was a little hesitant to say, well, you know, this was a racial incident here. Understandable. And I'm sure he may be, his people may be filing a notice of claim against the NYPD if they haven't done so already. That's a prelude to a lawsuit, by the way. So, uh, his uh, lawyer, James Blake's lawyer, Kevin Marino, called that letter from Patty Lynch far worse than nonsense. And said, quote, in attempting to justify Mr. Mr. Frascatori's indefensible conduct by reference to the risks and rigors of police work, Mr. Lynch badly deserves himself and the many honorable officers he is sworn to represent. Got that right. And, of course, you know, you don't want to blame line officers for a chain of mistakes that ended up not only with James Blake getting busted and wrestled to the ground, but to have a respected businessman half a world away, actually three quarters of a world away, accused of something he had nothing to do with. And by the way, the NYPD, I'm not saying he had nothing to do with it. The NYPD says he had nothing to do with it. The picture was the wrong man. That's incredible. Incredible to contemplate. But wait, as they say in the infomercials, there's more. As I mentioned, Jim Dwyer wrote a piece that's headlined, Misidentified and Tackled by the New York Police, but No Tennis Star Treatment. And this should be, you know, this should outrage everybody. This happened back in February. February, no less. The scene apparently was a street outside a barbershop on Teller Avenue in the Bronx. And an 11-year-old child, a girl, Angie is her name. She's a sixth-grade student at the New Millennium Business Academy Middle School in Morrisane. She found herself thrown onto a sidewalk by an NYPD officer after they mistakenly identified her as being involved in a theft. And both James Blake, uh, James Blake's interaction with the police and Angie's were in fact captured on surveillance video. The officer in the Bronx was a police department lieutenant brought charges against, against Angie. She was accused of stealing a cell phone from a cab driver who had gotten into a scuffle with boys who had been throwing snowballs at cars. However, there, were no cell, there was no cell phone found on the girl, and the charges have been provisionally dismissed. And the lieutenant filed an affidavit that seems to be, how best to put this, 
at variance with the evidence on the video. Nobody has apologized to Angie. Uh, the officer involved said that in his attempt to take her into custody, they slipped on the ice and they both fell. The video doesn't show that. So when you look at this incident in the Bronx, which probably wouldn't have seen the light of day without the good work of Jim Dwyer, and the fact that it happened in February, and it never comes to light that I know of, you got to ask yourself, how many other times are people manhandled by the NYPD? Now, some of them may be guilty. Some of them may have resisted. There's no, you know, you're not trying to condemn all takedowns by cops because some of them are legit. Some of them are righteous. But an 11-year-old kid? An 11-year-old child? You take down like that? That's ridiculous. That's absolutely ridiculous. Now, apparently, her lawyer, her family's lawyer, has uh, already made a claim, a civil claim against the city. And in that deposition, Angie said that she was walking, she and a friend were walking from school to a bus stop when a livery cab driver began yelling at her to give back his phone. Angie said, I don't have a phone. You can check me. And that is when I see seen a police coming towards me. He said to come here. And I walked up to him and then he was grabbing me. The officer, Lieutenant Paul Gaglio, the 44th precinct, said he was responding to a specific identification by the cab driver. The complainant tells us she did it and now she's eluding us says the uh, head of the union that represents police lieutenants. And again, the affidavit that this cop Gaglio filed is at variance with what's on the video. And I know people are going to say, well, you know, the video doesn't tell the whole story. The video doesn't tell the whole story. (sighs) And you wonder why police community relations are what they are. And by the way, many people may try to evade police, not because they're guilty of anything, but because they don't want to get taken down. They don't want encounters with police. And that's a shame. You know, uh, and this is just a small example But not that long ago, I went up to the Bronx to see my grandson playing a basketball tournament. My son was coaching his team. So I I went up with my daughter. It was just before she left to go away to school. And as the younger part of the program was coming to an end, because it was Marble Hill Day in that part of the Bronx, any of you who know the Bronx probably know Marble. Um, a group of police, pretty large number of police, pulled up and got out of their cars and were walking around the periphery of the basketball court. And the thing that struck me about this, because apparently they were there to you know, keep law and order when the festivities started, and that's cool. I got no problem with that. What I did have a problem with, however, was that those cops did not speak to a single soul in authority at that basketball. He didn't have to speak to my son. He's not necessarily in authority. But you would think in a world where police community relations were where they should be, somebody in that group of cops would have known somebody in the group of people that were in the tournament or were supervising the tournament or were supervising Marble Hill Day. I didn't see it. Maybe it happened after I left, because I left not too long afterwards. Maybe it happened later. But just that picture of cops showing up somewhere and seemingly not knowing anybody. And, you know, these cops were from the, the 50th Precinct, which covers Marble Hill. You would think they'd know somebody. But I quibble. 
<laughs> I guess I guess I just quibble just a little bit. Moving on to some other stories. And, and, and this may be in concert with whatever debate festivities are going on tonight. I think that the, the pre-debate, the lower tier debate, may have already started. I'm sure people are waiting with bated breath. Um, this is an interesting story. State GOP leaders, candidates who skip Florida should not be on the ballot. That would be the Florida primary ballot. They, apparently, there's some Republican leaders that are concerned that Florida is being overshadowed by other early presidential primary states. So officials are considering not allowing GOP candidates on the primary ballot if they don't attend a November candidate summit. It's called the Sunshine State Summit. It's in Orlando. And it's the brainchild of the new Republican Party chair in Florida. What's interesting about this is that of the 16 Republican candidates, only Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio have confirmed they will attend. Now, it is in November. And, you know, they got time. The other candidates have time, I guess. But this is fascinating to me because it seems to operate at cross purposes with what they seem to want to accomplish, which is to give Florida more juice in the early primaries. Can you imagine Florida thinking they had any juice nationally if the only two candidates on their ballot are Marco Rubio and Jeb Bush? Now, you know, maybe by November, all the other candidates will have dropped out, including Donald Trump. So maybe that's all they got to mess with. I don't think so, however. It seems like it's like shooting yourself in the foot. And there are Republicans in Florida who say, like, yo, what, what the deuce are you doing? Uh, according to Brad Harrell, the state GOP executive director of Florida, quote, the idea is that we potentially would tie ballot access in Florida to participation in the Sunshine Summit. A Broward County Republican co-chair of the Republican National Committee called that idea pay-to-play and likened it to blackmail. Apparently, this was discussed in a, a call that lasted about 90 minutes. State law requires political parties to submit a slate of presidential candidates to the Florida Division of Elections, but it's silent on how the parties must get those lists. It is not smart. God, could you imagine if other states started doing exactly the same thing? Not smart, Florida. If you want your primary to have some impact, then do something to make it have an impact. I don't know. Move the, move the primary date up. Probably too late for that. But to tie ballot access to a candidate summit? Just not smart. And I mean, there are people, the Republicans of Florida know this isn't smart. Because, you know, some of the candidates might just jump up and say, you know what? You're trying to blackmail us. I'm not coming. Do something about it. Or, just like, go ahead, don't put my name on the ballot. Imagine Donald Trump, 50-50, he says, don't put my name on the ballot. I'm the front runner. How important would your primary be if my name isn't available to voters? And by the way, that's the important part here. These clowns are trying to control who the Republicans in Florida can vote for. Now, you know, ordinarily, as somebody who's not a Florida Democrat, I could care less. (laughs) I really could. But it's just it's incredible. It's incredible. It's 25 minutes past the hour of 6 o'clock. You can give us a call at 877-874-4888. 877-874-4888. And yes, ladies and gentlemen, after all this time, I've committed that phone number finally to memory. 877-874-4888. I'd be interested to hear what people's take is on the James Blake situation. Now, Moving along, 
You know, the, I, I mentioned last week that the Senate tried to block the Iran deal unsuccessfully. Forty-two Democrats essentially gave the rest of the body the finger and said, no, you, no, you won't. You're not going to scuttle this thing. So what do the Republicans in the Senate do? <clears throat> Mitch McConnell and them call another vote yesterday. And again, Senate Democrats blocked it. Senator Mitch McConnell called for a second vote, despite protests from Democrats, that it was a waste of time. Yes, Mitch McConnell, it was a waste of time. He insisted, did McConnell, that senators needed to rethink their support. But the same 42 Democrats stopped it yet again. So rather than give up, because Republicans are nothing if not persistent when it comes to this, boy, they hate Barack Obama. They just hate Barack Obama. McConnell has announced plans to force a vote on an amendment that would bar President Obama from lifting economic sanctions against Iran unless Tehran released American prisoners and recognized Israel as a state. What? What? I would think that's like a diplomatic initiative, not one that is enforced by Congress. Uh, that vote could take place tomorrow morning. <laughs> it would probably be as useless as the first two votes. Now, remember, you know, these are the same clowns in the House anyway that voted to uh, 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 abolish Obamacare how many times? What was it, 40-some-odd times? So they're nothing else if not persistent. But, I mean, come on. You got the potential for a government shutdown coming up on Tuesday. Tuesday. And y'all ain't got nothing better to do than the whole votes that you know the outcome of in advance? If it was me, I, I, if, even if I was a Republican, I'd be saying, yo, Mitch McConnell, <laughs> Mitch, Mitch, what are you doing? Now, of course, the Republicans are also fighting on another front. Because, again, the government shutdowns on Tuesday. On my birthday? You can't shut the government on my birthday. What are you, drunk? Anyway, uh, they're threatening to block a budget deal if it includes financing for Planned Parenthood. See, they always seem to try and move the target, all right? It's the Iran deal. If we don't get Obama to back off the Iran deal, we'll shut the government. If anybody talks about funding Planned Parenthood, and make no mistake about this, folks, Planned Parenthood is not a perfect organization, but the allegations of body selling and all the rest of that, selling fetuses, it's all bogus. It is all bogus. And these Republicans know it. It's just like the whole vote fraud thing. Well, we have to protect against voter fraud. Voter fraud is minuscule. In this case, Planned Parenthood as an organization has never solicited, attempted to sell body parts. That's absurd. But it doesn't matter. They go by this video that these clowns put together. And to them, that's proof that they're selling body parts. And, you know, infant body parts, I might add. Makes it sound really gross. And... Through that, they want to defund Planned Parenthood. And if people don't go along, if the president doesn't go along, they'll shut the government yet again. <coughs> Even though Republicans acknowledge that the last time they tried this crap and the government did shut down, it hurt them. So Barack Obama says he's going to be... Uh, Joining this fight. You know, I got to say, it's a little late, Mr. President. You should have been engaged in this stuff from the very beginning. This brinkmanship, this Tuesday brinkmanship, is, it doesn't serve anybody, least of all the American people, I might add. And it is rare, if ever, that I speak for the American people. But if folks don't get their Social Security checks, and if folks don't get some of the stuff that they depend on from the federal government, and more on dependence on the federal government, a little later on, they take it out on whoever they think is at fault. 
And it's the Republicans, in this instance, who are involved. And they can't stand up there and hold up Planned Parenthood. Well, we won't do it because of Planned Parenthood, Planned Parenthood, Planned Parenthood. It's nonsense. It is all nonsense. We're going to take a break. It's 6.30. On the nose. No light. No less. Uh, We're going to take a quick one. We're going to... Oh, no. I'm sorry. I won't take a break just yet. There's an issue. So uh, if I break now, it's not a good thing. When we're ready, I will, in fact, break. But, I mean, I, I could talk more about this government shutdown nonsense. I really could. Because it's crap. It is pure crap. And, you know, for Congress, and remember... House and Senate, both in Republican hands. For Congress to hold the American people hostage like this. Uh, and, you know, McConnell now says he uh, supports an agreement that would keep the government funded for several months. Will you stop with the short-term solutions to this? Seems to me like, you know, the government should function from year to year or Best of circumstances, every five years they should come back and, you know, retweak stuff, four years, whenever. But like several months or seven days or six weeks, that's crap. It's absolutely crap. And the politicians in Washington know this. They know it. They know they're playing politics with the health and well-being of the American people. Because they're the ones that suffer when the government shuts down. It's absolutely ridiculous. Um, what bothers me, uh, and by the way, that's not the only thing that they're looking to do here, the Republicans. Uh, they're talking about repealing some EPA regulations, repealing the Dodd-Frank bill, or parts of the Dodd-Frank bill, writers that might include immigration. John Boehner in the House says, uh, you know, well, well I'm, I'm working to try and stop this. Boehner says, quote, when he was asked if he could guarantee there'd be no shutdown, John Boehner can't guarantee he's actually in Washington, D.C., because his Tea Party Republican caucus, in some cases, will lead him around by his nostrils. But he says, listen, the goal here is not to shut down the government. The goal here is to stop these horrific practices of organizations selling baby parts. John Boehner, you know Planned Parenthood is not one of those organizations. Now, you know, their aides and their consultants in the Republican Party, because sometimes they actually do listen to them. They're telling them, look, man, you can't do this. It will be a disaster for Republicans. And keeping in mind that politicians' first order of business is the acquisition and maintenance of power, they don't want to do anything that's going to call that power into question whether you're John Boehner or a freshman from wherever. They don't want to do that. So maybe they'll get some sense in their heads. Maybe. Maybe. And try and uh, get this straight. The president's, you know, hitting the road, going to be talking about this. And the president says the Republicans are engineering another financial crisis. But there are some congressional Democrats who are scared that they can avoid a government shutdown. You know, it's like, let people respond at the polls, which is the best place to do this, if there is a government shutdown. Now, you know, a cynic, which some have accused me of being, might well say, Well, let them. Let them shut it down. Let the Republicans act like idiots if that's what they want to do. But 
they know good and well that they are boxing themselves into a corner from which there is no escape, y'all. No escape whatsoever. Now, you know, I, I've been talking for the last half hour about bad news. Let's talk about some good news for a change. How about that? The number of Americans without health insurance falls as income and poverty rate stay level. It's from the Washington Post. The proportion of Americans who lack health insurance took a big dip last year with nearly 9 million people gaining coverage since 2013. This is according to federal figures that were announced this morning. This is from the annual census survey. And it found that the share of people across the country who were uninsured throughout the year fell from 13.1% in 2013 to 10.4% last year. That is, the Post says, in part, reflecting the impact of the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare. Yet, you're going to hear, if you watch the debates tonight, I I don't know how many of you are going to be bothered. I, I can't. I really can't. However, those of you who do watch it, you're going to hear references to Obamacare and what a disaster it is and what a job killer it is, even though the unemployment rate is dipped to 5.1%. They're going to talk the same trash that they always talk because they got nothing. They've got nothing else to say. So they will trot out the same fetid garbage And, you know, some of these people, I don't know how many of the 16 really hate Barack Obama or whether they just dislike him politically and dislike the fact that he's gotten some, not all, but some of what he's wanted during his presidency. He's made some mistakes now. Don't get that twisted. This president has made some mistakes. But, like, in this last, what is it, year and change he's got left? He seems to be trying to at least rectify some of them and pushing some initiatives that make logical sense from a political standpoint. He's working against a Congress that is predominantly Republican, but he still has the power of the veto. And that's a very, very powerful weapon in the president's quiver. Now, when it comes to income inequality, because the census also talked about that, that's essentially flat, all right? The nation's official poverty rate stayed level at 14.8%. 46.7 million people in this country live in poverty. That's more people than live in the entire state of California. A supplemental poverty measure, considered more accurate, showed the rate at 15.3%, similar to 2013. Wages continued a long stagnation, with the median household income remaining at $53,657. That's effectively the same after adjusting for inflation. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the reason why, despite the stock market, you know, on a roller coaster ride, but doing relatively well, despite the fact that we are told You know, the nation's adding X number of jobs every month, and the unemployment rate is falling. That's the reason why people don't think that the economy is actually getting any better. Because their own situations, sad to say, aren't really getting any better. You see help-wanted signs in various places, but they are almost invariably for low-wage jobs, minimum wage or slightly higher. And this is why people feel that they're not really getting ahead, that the American people economically are treading water. The rich are getting richer at about the same rate. And by the way, this is the third consecutive year in which median incomes for Americans remained constant. That remains, by the way, 6.5% lower than in 2007, just eight years ago. Income inequality, 
remained high and statistically indistinguishable from 2013. The top 5% of Americans earned 21.9% of income. The bottom fifth of Americans earned 3%. Something called the Gini Index, which I had never heard of before, which is a measure of inequality, was 0.480 in 2014. Now, statistically different from the past, uh, from the prior year. It's been climbing in recent decades. In 1993, it was 0.454. So you see, there's good news and there's bad news. The good news is more people actually are accessing health insurance, which is critical. It really, really is critical. But the other problem, of course, is that incomes and income inequality is not such good news. It's remaining stagnant. Now, I think there are certain parts of the economy that could get a huge boost. You know, start building some... Excuse me, I got got ready to say something I shouldn't have said. So I didn't say it. But start building some infrastructure. There are infrastructure projects, certainly all around the New York metropolitan region. People get stuck in traffic jams because of them many times. The Hudson Yards, where they just opened a train station to much fanfare, and then today had signal problems at the same train station. My God, can't win for losing. Anyway, you look at the Hudson Yards, you'd think construction there would be going on forever. All the work that's going on. Well, that's work. That's paychecks. That's a decent wage for people. But there are other infrastructure projects, and we'll get into the Hudson River Tunnel. Of course, in addition to the Hudson River Tunnel, because the one we have is kind of jacked up. But this is, these are the kinds of things that can provide jobs that people can feed their families. You can't feed a family working as a stock clerk in a department store. You can't feed a department, and I'm not going to name a, a specific department store. It's unnecessary. I was in Virginia this past weekend, and I saw with my own two eyes shopping center after shopping center, shopping mall after shopping mall, just these huge clusters of places. This is down by Virginia Beach, in Chesapeake specifically. And, you know, you see these places, and then you start thinking to yourself, well, these places employ all these people. So, yeah, it's a gigantic economic engine. But how many of them, realistically, make more than about 25 to 30 grand a year? Now, maybe that goes further in Virginia than it does in New York. As a matter of fact, I'm almost sure it goes further in Virginia. But can people actually feed their families? Or does mom and dad both have to work just to, uh, you know, get enough money to provide the bare subsistence that's necessary for a family in America in the year 2015? That's what these numbers are really saying. We've got work to do. And, And politicians arguing about Planned Parenthood, in my judgment, is pretty low on the totem pole. It's coming up on 15 minutes before the hour of 7. I only got 15 minutes left to bloviate? Wow. Uh, I'm sure some of you, not maybe not all of you, have heard this story about this 14-year-old kid in Texas who brought a homemade clock, a clock he created to school, and ended up in handcuffs. Because somebody at the school thought the clock was actually a bomb. His name is Ahmed Muhammad. Thankfully, he will not be charged with possessing a hoax bomb because there's no evidence that he meant to cause any alarm at his school in Irving, Texas. Police Chief Larry Boyd says the clock looked suspicious in nature, but that he considers the case closed. The kid was suspended for three days for this. And apparently, this kid is like some kind of 
mechanical savant. He created this clock. It's a digital clock. He created it himself. He wanted to show his teachers his ingenuity. His ingenuity. And what did he get for his trouble? I saw a picture of him with his hands behind his back in handcuffs. And, I mean, it's nice that they, you know, let him go and all. Maybe part of the reason for that is because this became a pretty immediate cause celeb. You know, uh, we live in a time where what happens in Irving, Texas, can very easily resonate throughout the country if they do something dumb enough. And this was dumb. This was absolutely dumb. In fact, uh, President Obama invited the kid to the White House, which I'm sure will stoke the flames of people who think he's a Muslim to begin with. At one time, 25% of the population thought that way. Obama is a Muslim. Maybe it was 25% of Republicans. I don't want to misspeak. But be that as it may, the kid's father is wondering if this is just not some Islamophobic thing because the kid's last name is Muhammad. On Monday, now apparently he he told the Dallas Morning News that he makes his own radios, repairs his own go-kart, and on Sunday assembled this clock. So only spent about 20 minutes doing so, using a circuit board power supply wired to a digital display. He wanted to show his work to his engineering teacher, but was warned to keep the clock in his backpack. When it began beeping in another class, he brought it to that teacher's attention, and shortly afterward, he was pulled from the class, questioned and searched by the principals and officers in Irving. And, of course, the powers that be here, the mayor, the police, well, we have to, and and the head of the uh, school district there, we have to keep our children safe. We have to make sure that nobody's bringing a bomb into school. And this looked like a bomb. It was a clock, but it looked like a bomb. And for some unexplained reason, they wanted to posit the notion that this young man deliberately made it look like a bomb. God. God, how simple-minded must people be? And you suspend him for three days? Hello, can I speak to my lawyer, please? <laughs> That's what that is precisely what I would be doing. His father, Muhammad El Hassan Muhammad, says that his son, quote, just wants to invent good things for mankind. But because his name is Muhammad, and because of September 11th, I think my son got mistreated. Now, school officials are saying that the reaction to the clock would have been the same regardless of the young man's religion. But you know, the problem is some kid goes into that school with a gun in his pocket or in his backpack or something and shoots people up. That they wouldn't necessarily pay attention to until it was too late. You see, that's the paradox here. Uh, and, I, you know, I'm... I'm I'm all with the father. The kid's name wasn't Muhammad. I don't think he'd have had that big of a problem. It would have been show and tell. (laughs) Good old-fashioned show and tell. Suspended for three days. And according to this article, it's not clear if he'll be allowed to return to school now that police have said he won't be charged. And, of course, you know, the powers that be in the school citing privacy laws wouldn't discuss any of this. It is a hot mess. And, you know, this is America, you know. Ingenuity is supposed to be encouraged and rewarded. Now, nobody wants, you know, a kid to bring a time bomb into school. But the flip side of it is you don't put a kid in handcuffs. You could have kept them in the principal's office. Call the cops in. I assume they have people that are experts. They have, maybe they even got a bomb squad. They could have brought a bomb squad in, inspected the thing, realized it was harmless, and sent the kid back to class. Wouldn't that have been the logical thing to do if they were truly afraid that it was a bomb? 
I'm thinking the you know the administration at the school isn't qualified to figure that out. But somebody in the police department should be. Don't they have maybe they don't have bomb squads in Irving? I don't know. I could be wrong. But it would seem to me that that would have been the logical, rational thing to do. Say, okay, Ahmed, you sit in the class, you know, sit in the room over here. You want some water? You want anything? And we're going to inspect this. We're going to have the bomb squad look at it. And once we finish looking at it, you can go back to class if there's no problem. Instead, they leave the kid out of school in handcuffs. It's offensive. It is offensive. Simple as that. An 11-year-old kid gets tackled by a cop. A 14-year-old kid is let out of school in handcuffs in front of his peers because apparently the cops ain't got a bomb, bomb squad in Irving, Texas. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Uh... We've got a few minutes left. I, I did want to kind of get into this a little bit because I had mentioned it. Uh, headline, Cuomo and Christie say states can pay half of Hudson Rail Tunnel Project. It's a big project, and it's desperately, desperately needed. This is infrastructure that would create jobs that would, in fact, pay people a decent wage. Not just a living wage, a decent wage. So the governors of New York and New Jersey, Andrew Cuomo and Chris Christie, sent a letter to President Obama offering to pony up half of the cost of this new tunnel if the federal government pledges grants, not loans, grants for the other half. They say that building the tunnel is important. That's nice. And they committed to paying for their fair share of the project, which apparently could cost as much as 20 billion bucks. Says the letter, quote, we are writing jointly in an attempt to move the stall project forward by putting a funding proposal on the table that we believe is realistic, appropriate, and fair. Split the responsibility for the cost. The White House issued a statement last night saying that uh, the Transportation Secretary, Anthony Fox, would work with the two states to determine how the federal government could best support progress on this project. Now, here's the problem. And, and by the way, Christie and Cuomo know this already. Who would end up supervising that project? Who? I'll tell you who. The Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. Now, if I was Barack Obama, I'd say, sure, we'll give you half the money, but you can't funnel it through an agency that is bloated, that is corrupt. You know, the, the guy at United Airlines just quit because of some foolishness involving the Port Authority. Nobody, but the Port Authority, however, seems to be completely immune to any sort of sanction or any sort of reform to the way they do business because it's, you know, the governor of New York, the governor of Jersey. They like it the way it is. They get to appoint people to the board. They get to oversee who works there and who doesn't. And who can forget Bridgegate? I hate to use the word gate. Gate is so overused. Deflate gate, this gate, that gate. Bridgegate. Who was knee deep in that? The Port Authority. So you want the Port Authority to supervise the construction of this tunnel. If I were Barack Obama or his transportation secretary, Anthony Fox, I'd say, I don't think so. Now, part of the reason why they've actually begun acting on all this, our erstwhile governors of New York and New Jersey, is because there was like a bunch of rail delays back in July. You remember that? Signal problems, delays, people sitting up in cars for... I'm talking about rail cars now, for a good long time. But this is the first time this letter they sent to the president, first time they voiced a specific commitment to fund the project. And they stopped all the, it's not my tunnel, it's not my tunnel, it's not my tunnel, it's not my tunnel. 
They tried to put the weight on Amtrak and New Jersey Transit. As if New Jersey Transit isn't a wholly owned subsidiary of Chris Christie Incorporated. This is the kind of stuff that is just, you know, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It, it, again, it makes perfect sense for the federal, federal government to pony up. Although, you know, Chris Christie's running for president. I'm assuming he's running with the same conservative streak that the rest of these people are, which, by the way, says the federal government shouldn't be paying for nothing. <laughs> nothing. Let the states do it. Well, not in this case. They're going hat in hand to this, and they're not asking for loans. They're not asking for the government to bond this out. They want grants. If it costs $20 billion, they want Uncle Sam to pony up 10 of it. I don't know. Con- Congress may not be down with that, but hey, whatever. Our final story is a, a little bit off the beaten path. And it's off the beaten path just because I am a maniacal, I guess that's the right term, lover of music. Headline, Vinyl LP Frenzy Brings Record Pressing Machines Back to Life. Now, essentially, vinyl music, records, died with the advent of the CD in the early 1980s. That's what everybody thought. It was dead, done, buried. Everybody, that is, except a good friend of mine who I spoke to earlier today, whose name is David, who has had nothing to do with any digital technology since the day they introduced it. He believes in analog. He believes in vinyl. He gives parties. And at his parties, he uses a lot of high-end transcription material, like turntables that cost a boatload of money, cartridges that cost a boatload of money, needles that cost a boatload of money, to create an extraordinary sound. And, you know, when people say that vinyl is warmer than digital, they're not lying. They really aren't. Listen to a vinyl record and then listen to a song that's been downloaded, even at some of the higher bit sampling rates, like 320 or whatever. It may come closer, but there's a warmth to vinyl that exists in no digital reproduction system, as far as I'm concerned. It's just me. Maybe my hearing is getting bad because I'm, I'm an old man now. But understand that there are others who agree. And the amazing thing about this, you know, because you would think this resurgence of vinyl to the tune of like 13 and a half million vinyl records sold last year. Uh, the reason, not the reason, but the surprising component of this is the simple fact that according to the folks that keep the records on this, 54% of the people who are purchasing vinyl, 54%, more than half, are under the age of 35. Which means they were born about the time vinyl records died. Or at least that's what everybody thought, that they died. And you know what? Does my heart good to see it. I, I have all digital equipment now. I'm not going to front. But the sound of vinyl reinforces what my friend David has always believed, that it is the best way for people to listen to great music. Well, I'm out of here. Time to go. Yeah, it's a minute before the hour is 7 o'clock. I want to thank you all so much for listening. I really do appreciate it. I'm not saying that just because, you know, I, I need something to say to end the show. My thanks to Jason and all the good people at PRN, Gary Knoll, the whole crew, for all the good work that they do. I'll be back next week, 6 p.m., God willing, in the creek don't rise. This has been the Mark Riley Show. I am he. Have a great evening and a better week ahead.